Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Let me uh, open us with another word of prayer. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to just speak to us through your word. We, we believe the Bible is your word given to us so that we can know you uh, and so that we can be changed by you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would take the scriptures and apply them to our hearts uh, so that we are changed to be more, made more like your son, uh, Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, several weeks ago at the start of this series, I recommended a book. Uh, the, the book's title is Know What You Believe by Paul Little, and it's a nice kind of basic explanation of the faith, the doctrines of the faith. It talks about the Bible, what is the Bible, the, the Trinity, and it has a chapter on the Son. And I wanted to kind of open today's message with the opening that he uses and, and makes a, a very interesting point. He starts this chapter on the Son, on Jesus, by saying that Christ is very essential to Christianity, and that this is actually different than some other religions and the characters that they have in their faiths. For example, you can lose Buddha, and you can still have the teachings of Buddhism. You can lose Muhammad and still have Islam. You can lose uh, Confucius and still have Confucianism. Uh, You can lose one of uh, the, you can lose thousands, if not millions, of Hinduism's 330 million gods, and you can still have Hinduism. But if you lose Jesus, if you lose Christ, you lose Christianity. Christianity is all about. Christ. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story of the Bible. It's that video we watched. Everything points to him. He is the founder of our faith. It calls him the the author of our faith. He is the author of what we believe. He he taught our, our core tenets. He is also called the bridegroom of the church. That means he is created for the church for us, the people of God, and he's molding and shaping us. He is the fulfillment of all the promises in the scriptures, and he is one of the persons of the triune God. So if you got rid of Jesus, we would actually have to change the very character of who God is. Christ is essential to Christianity. Now, not only is Christ essential to the Bible, he's the thread that holds everything together, But it was pointed out to me this week that he is also essential to our articles of faith. So if we have great articles of faith about the Father and the Holy Spirit and and heaven and hell and the church and the mission of the church, but we don't have an article of faith about Jesus, we miss the whole point and everything falls apart. But I want to take this one step further. I I want to tell you that it's not just articles of faith that'll fall apart without Jesus. 
It's not just the Bible that falls apart without Jesus. It's us. It's you. It's me. That without Christ in our lives, we're missing something. Without Jesus living in our hearts and and ruling over us and us following him, we're missing out on a major portion of, of, of what life is about, who we were created to be. We can still have good lives, but we won't have lives as God intended them to be lived. I was thinking about this idea of of something that we need in our lives, and we're not always aware of it. My mind turned to salt. Did you know that you can have too little salt? Some of you are out there saying, praise God, (laughs) preach it, preach it. (laughs) Hyponatremia is, a, is this medical condition where there's low sodium in the bloodstream. And it leads to all sorts of like organ failures and issues over time. And it can even lead to death. When I was uh, in, uh, in seminary, I lived with an elderly woman for a year. And her husband uh, actually died as a result of medication kind of stripping him of the sodium in his, his blood system. So he experienced the negative effects of low salt, low sodium. Now, we live in a culture that often says, you know, eat less sodium. But what if you actually need more salt? We live in a world that says, you need less of Jesus. You can have your religion, you can have your faith, but why don't you take Jesus out of your diet? Why don't you remove Christ and it'll be okay? And what if the very thing that those around you and maybe you yourself have bought into is the thing that you, you need? The thing that you've rejected is the thing that is most important for your life, Jesus. I truly believe this, and I hope that through the course of this message, you will come to understand who Jesus is and, and kind of comprehend why he is so vital, so important to your life, that if you are missing Jesus, that you will Bring him in tonight, not tomorrow, not some other day, but you will bring him into your life tonight. Now, we're talking about who Jesus is, and we're, we're kind of breaking it down uh, into three aspects of who he is. We're going to talk about Jesus as our God, Savior, and King. My big idea is that Jesus is God, Savior, King, so worship, trust, and obey him. Now, I didn't come up with this outline of God, Savior, King. Uh, This comes through Terry from one of his New Testament professors, Dr. Charles Quarles. But Dr. Quarles, he even attributes it further back. (laughs) So he didn't invent it either, but maybe he he kind of is passing along this knowledge. And so I want to pass it along to us that kind of thinking of Jesus as God, Savior, and King is a great way to get a really well-rounded picture of who Christ is. Now, maybe some of you have seen the little fish symbol. Maybe some of you have it on your bumper, uh, or you've seen someone go speeding by you, and you notice it on their bumper, and you just shake your head. That's one reason that I, I don't have a fish symbol on my car. I don't want to attribute my, my driving to Jesus, but if you have it, praise God. Uh, now, the fish symbol, I want to I put this up on the board. It, so this originated in very kind of early church history, but this actually points to this idea of Jesus being God, Savior, and King. Now, fish in Greek is the word ichthys, 
And it's an acrostic. So the first uh, letter of each of the words means something. So Jesus, Christos, Theos, Uios, Soter. It means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. In other words, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, uh, the Christ is a messianic title for king. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. Jesus is Christ. He's the Son of God. That means Jesus is God. And he's Soter. He's the Savior. Jesus Christ is God, Savior, and King. This is even what the early church knew, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. To really believe Christianity, you had to believe these things. To be a Christian today, you need to believe these things. So we're going to look even one, one generation, two generations earlier than this. We're going to look to the Bible. And we're going to see what the Bible says about Jesus and how it says these th- same things. That Jesus is God and Savior and King. And I loved our video today because it talked about all the different literary styles. And we're going to be looking at, uh, at a letter kind of a, a discourse letter, but what we're, the segment in that letter we're going to look at is not uh, discourse. It's poetry. It's a hymn. It's a song. And the Apostle Paul wrote this, uh, wrote it down. We don't know if it comes from him or, or someone else, but it's this beautiful hymn, this beautiful poem, this beautiful song that the early church could have sung. And the message that Paul was writing with this passage is he was using this poem to emphasize the importance of humility to these early Christians. But we're not going to look at that point. Instead, we're going to look at the theology inside the, pastor, uh, inside the passage. The theology is what it says about God, specifically the person of Christ Jesus. So first, it tells us that Jesus is God. Now, Before we look at our passage a little bit more in depth, Philippians chapter 2, I want us to look again at our article of faith. It says, We believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal and only Son of God. So at Cornerstone, at this church, if you're a believer and you count yourself to be a part of this family, and eventually when we have membership, when you become a member, you have to agree to this statement. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's divine. I believe he's not like partially God or some sort of hybrid that was created. He is God. In fact, he is fully God. Now we find this same truth in Philippians 2, verse 6. It says this about Jesus. It says, Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Now the word nature here in this passage is the Greek word morphe. So morphe means form or nature. This is making a bold statement. It's saying that Jesus is in the very form of God. The Son of God is indeed God. He he has the same essence, the same nature as God himself. Now, do you guys remember last week when we talked about the different attributes or characteristics of God the Father who also apply to the Holy Spirit and to the Son? For Jesus to be God means that he shares in the attributes of the Father. So he's also omniscient. He's also omnipotent. He is God. You can't have two all-powerful beings, can you? Because one has to be more powerful than the other. So they are one God. They're both omnipotent. They're both all-powerful because they are one God, the Father and the Son, and then also the Holy Spirit. 
You see, you have his omnipresence. You have uh, some of his uh, more relatable attributes like his, his faithfulness and his mercy and his holiness. Jesus has all of these because he also is God. Now, in our text, this is a poem, right? And what do you know about poetry is that there's kind of lines that match each other, that, that play off of each other. And in our poem, the first line actually matches the last line. So if you look at verse 11, and I'm not going to put it on the screen because I want you to look at your, your Bible. It says, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, do you remember in the Exodus series how we learned that Lord in the Old Testament is a translation of the name Yahweh? Yahweh is God's special covenant name. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, you see Lord over and over again. It can be Yahweh. It can, it can mean Adonai, which is another name for God. And if you, if you go to then the New Testament, what does it refer to Jesus as? It refers to Jesus as Lord. This is like a shout-out. <laughs> this is a shout-out from those New Testament authors back to the Old Testament saying, we agree with those Old Testament authors. There was this, this Greek, uh, uh, the, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and that's where we see the emergence of uh, referring to Yahweh and Adonai as Kyrios or Lord. And so Jesus now is called Kyrios or Lord in the New Testament, and that's saying Jesus is God. Now, what if Jesus disagreed with this? What if in the, the New Testament we saw people approaching Jesus and, and saying, you're God, and him saying, well, no, I'm not God. Well, then we would have some real difficulties, wouldn't we, between this letter and earlier passages. But if you look in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, you see people coming before Jesus and acting as if he is God, and Jesus accepts it. And we know this because who's the only person you're supposed to worship? Who's the only being you're supposed to worship? Well, from our Exodus series, we learned there is no other God but me, right? Have no other false gods, no other idols, no other images. And we see people coming before Jesus and worshiping him and Jesus not turning them away. John chapter 9, verse 38 says this, Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This is the man born blind who Jesus healed. He worshiped Jesus and Jesus does not turn him away. In the book of Matthew, after Jesus rose from the grave, Mary Magdalene and some other women met him in the garden. When they realized who Jesus is, they worshiped him. And notice that Jesus does not turn them away. Matthew 29, 8 through 10. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So what does it say? It says they worshiped him. And they, they were not turned away. See, Jesus wouldn't accept their worship unless he indeed was God. Uh, have any of you ever been mistaken for a celebrity? Anyone here ever been mistaken for a celebrity. Now, I assume, Megan, that you have been mistaken for Emma Stone. 
the redheaded Hollywood star of the movie La La Land on multiple occasions. And how did you react in those situations? Well, you just, you signed the autograph, right, on the actual picture of Emma Stone, and then you sent them on their way. And of course, I assume the, the guy sitting next to you has been mistaken for Tom Brady on multiple occasions. <laughs> the, the best, most talented, handsome quarterback of all time. Now, what would you do if someone came up to you and said, oh, you're that Hollywood star? You'd say, would you, would you like write your name and then just kind of send them on their way? They'll be like, I thought I had Emma Stone, but it says you're Megan. Oh. Uh, or would you just admit, you'd say, I'm not, I'm not who you think I am. I appreciate it, I'm flattered, but go search somewhere else. That's probably what you would do, right? Jesus doesn't do that when they come up to him and say, you're God. <laughs> he just says, yeah, I am. And he lets them worship him. Wow. So I have a question for us. Now that I have kind of brought this idea that Jesus is divine, Jesus is God, how are you going to respond? Are you going to worship him? Are you going to approach Jesus in awe and in worship? Jesus is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is, the, uh, he is one of those, he is, he is God. Our last line of this poem tells us how to worship God. It says, we're called to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To acknowledge means to admit or confess or to give thanks. So if you don't know Christ, if you have never confessed that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord, you're not a Christian. This is part of what it means to be a Christian, to say, I believe that Jesus is God. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. And so tonight we have an opportunity to wrestle with this truth. The Bible calls us to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is curious, Jesus is God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I'm pretty excited because, Lord willing, in the next couple of months, we're going to have a baptism. A baptism is a wonderful opportunity where someone gets in this tub and says, I believe Jesus is God and that Jesus has come into my life and he has changed me. If you've never been baptized, I encourage you to, to really consider it, really pray about taking that public opportunity to say Jesus is God. Now, if you have been baptized... You've gone through that, I encourage you to come talk to me about writing your faith story. Faith story is the story of how you came to know Christ as your Lord, as your God. I'd love to talk to you about your story and give you an opportunity to share it up here. Now what if you're a mature Christian? One of the ways to worship is to give thanks. Have you given thanks to Jesus for being God? That he has opened your eyes to this truth? Just give him thanks. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for opening my eyes, just like that blind man. He probably gave thanks as well. So first, Jesus is God, so worship him. Now let's look at that next aspect. Jesus is God, but he's also Savior. 
Now, our articles of faith continue, and they really talk about Jesus as Savior. They tell us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He was sinless in his life, making atonement for sin by his death and providing access to the Father. We believe in his bodily resurrection. Now, each of these points in this article really points to the incarnation. The incarnation is this, this like, mysterious, amazing truth that the God of the universe, uh, (laughs) that the Son of God somehow took on human flesh and became a man. And through that process, he came and lived in this world, he became our Savior. He became the one who would save us from our sins. But first, when you look at this idea that, well, Jesus is not only fully God, but he's fully man. Now, remember in verse 6, it says that Jesus was in the very nature of God. Okay, so that says Jesus is fully God. Now, look at the next line in verse 7. It parallels it. It says Jesus was, came in the, the very nature of a servant. Right here, we have a statement, Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. He came in the nature of a man and a servant and a lowly human being. This does not mean like those Greek myths. If you think about uh, Jesus as like Hercules, who's like, you know, one-tenth God, one-tenth divine, so he's super strong and super smart and super super powerful. That's not Jesus. Jesus somehow is 100% God and 100% man. And those two natures, they're not confused. They they don't like uh, kind of sap into each other. They're they're without confusion, but they're also unified in a single person. Now, this is a mystery. Uh, Theologians call this the hypostatic union. I think they just like to come up with this this strange term uh, to confuse us. It actually comes from like a Greek word. But this this phrase is used to describe that there are somehow divine nature and there's a human nature and they're fully united in the one person of Christ Jesus. But as the story goes on, we see that there, there was something mysterious that, that really took place in Christ. That when he was incarnated, he emptied himself. Verse 7 has one of like the most hotly debated lines uh, in the New Testament. It says, he made himself nothing. There's a Greek word here called canoe. And so this is why we call this the kenosis debate. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Does it, what does it mean that he made himself nothing? Does it mean that he got rid of his attributes? That Jesus like, stopped being omniscient? That he stopped being omnipotent? Well, if he, just for a moment, let's, let's assume that's the case. If he did that, could you then worship him as God? Because you wouldn't be worshiping the omnipotent being, would you? So when you get rid of his divine attributes, well, you get rid of God. To really figure out what this means, we don't have to come up with like a big, complicated theological theory. (laughs) We just read the very next line in this verse. It says that he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So when you're perfect and when you're like the, the, the most powerful being in the universe, you created the universe and you become like this small, finite, carbon-based individual a human being who suddenly now sweats and has tears and can cry and gets hungry, that's an emptying. (laughs) That's becoming nothing. So Jesus, uh, the, the Son of God, 
He was born, took on the name Christ Jesus. He became nothing by becoming human. But it's so important that he became human. Why? Think back to, uh, to the, the beginning of our story, the beginning of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. What happened there? We see a break between God and humanity. Adam and Eve, what do they do? They sin against God. And there, there's a, like this break in relationship between God and people, and God and human beings. Now, if you're human and suddenly you're sinful and you're broken and you're disobedient, how are you going to get back to God? Well, you can't because he's holy, he's perfect. So what's the best way to represent both parties in this relationship? You need someone who's both God and both man. And that's who Jesus is. He is fully God and and fully man. Our articles of faith go on to say that, okay, so he came as a man and then what did he do? Well, he lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life. And not like a perfect life in terms of success and climbing the corporate ladder. He was a carpenter for most of his life. In the last three years, he was a rabbi. But he always obeyed the Father. He always obeyed God. Don't you wish you could say, I've always obeyed God? I can't say that. But Jesus can. And that means he didn't only like not do bad things. He always did the things he was supposed to do. He was always doing the things that God called him to do, the right things. So Jesus was a sinless individual. And then it says that he made atonement for us. Well, what does that mean? Atonement is this idea of paying for a crime. Jesus paid the penalty for sin. But if he's a sinless being, did he atone for his sins? No. He atoned for our sins. He he, he paid the penalty for a crime he didn't deserve. You see all sorts of movies and stories about like the, the individuals who have been uh, incarcerated or, or locked away for crimes they didn't commit. Well, Jesus was executed for a crime that he did not commit, our sin, if you put your faith in him, if you trust in him. But the great news is that he's the perfect sacrifice. He could pay the penalty for my sin. He could pay the penalty for your sin, if you trust in him, if you give him your sin. And if you look at the very like, geographic center of this poem, the heart of this passage, it's in verse 8. It ta- it, there's this repetition of a word. And it describes how Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. It says he died. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the, the cross really is the heart of Christianity. And what Christ did there, paying the penalty for our sins, changes everything. But the good news is, the story of Christianity is a story, and it does have a really good ending. It doesn't end with him dying. It's not a tragedy, and he stays dead. Instead, three days later, what does he do? He rises from the grave. It's the resurrection. And the even better news, if you don't know Jesus and you put your faith in him, his resurrection becomes your resurrection. That means when Jesus defeated sin and death, he defeated your sin and your death. And one day, one day, it won't be too far away, after we've all died and Christ returns, we will be raised from the grave. And if you know him, if you've put your faith in him, we'll all experience that all together. And it'll be really wonderful. 
But in order to receive the gift of the resurrection, what do you have to do? You have to trust in him. That leads me to kind of the next question. Do you trust him? Do you trust Jesus? The Bible is very clear that you, just believing that Jesus is God, like intellectually assenting that, to that truth, that's important, but that's just the first step. Jesus is interested more in just like acknowledgement of who he is. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to, to fall on him. Our, our youth right now are on a missions trip in France. This is the, the first day of camp right now. So they're getting to know uh, the, the teenagers. Well, they're probably going to bed right about now. It's six hours ahead of us. Uh, but when I was there in 2014, uh, the, this, I think it was like early on this day of camp, so like right before all the campers were there, uh, we decided to kind of have a, a fun way to build trust with each other. And how do you do that when you're at camp? Well, you do trust falls. So any of you know what a, a trust fall is? It's where, you know, you line up two groups of people and <laughs> you put your arms together and then you fall backward and Lord willing, they catch you, Right? Lord willing, <laughs> you don't hurt yourself. I got to do this and others did this and it was a lot of fun. But you really do have to trust them. You can't like put your foot back midway through your fall because you might hurt them. Or if you throw your arms out, you might like hit them in the face. You really have to trust them. So I have a question. Do you trust Jesus? He is offering to catch you in the midst of all of your junk in the midst of all of your sin, all of your problems, Jesus is willing to catch you. But there's a difference between this picture of a trust fall and the picture of Jesus. See, the one with Jesus, he can be the only one standing behind you. He doesn't line up next to Islam. He doesn't line up next to Buddhism. He doesn't line up next to your good works, like I'm a loving human being. He, he, he will not stand next to that. He says, you either have to put all of your chips on me, you have to trust me completely, or I won't catch you. But Jesus invites you. I mean, Jesus, when he was crucified, he was bearing the burden of our sin. Like, he is strong. <laughs> he is strong. He can catch you no matter your circumstance, no matter your sin. There is no sin that is too heavy for him. He will catch you if you fall on him. And this is a good reminder if we're Christians and we've been going through life and you know, we've been resting in the arms of our Savior and then we start to kind of get antsy and we begin to put our trust in our own good deeds and our like, own performance as a Christian. Like We begin to write our Christian resume and say, Jesus, like I, I'm trusting in this now instead of you. Remember, Christianity is about trusting him, about trusting Jesus, not about trusting ourselves or anyone else. The good news is that you can fall, and he will catch you. So first, Jesus is God, so what do we do? We worship him. And he is Savior, so we trust him. So you trust him. And third, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. I'm going to focus on the last section of our article of faith. It says, we believe in his bodily resurrection, ascension to heaven, and promise to return to this world. The story of Christianity just keeps going. 
It doesn't end at his death. It doesn't end at his resurrection. 40 days after he rose, he ascended. He went even higher. And he, he ascended into heaven. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. But in this kind of ascension, Jesus is formally recognized as king. Jesus is the final king. He's fully God, he's fully man, and he's the final king. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 say this. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to point out two signs of Jesus' royalty in this passage in our like, closing verses that point to him being king. Well, first, when Jesus rose into heaven, it says that God the Father exalted him. Well, what does that mean? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, we, we read that when, jo- when Jesus rose into heaven, he took a place, a place uh, right next to the throne of his father. He, took, he, he, he became like, like God's, he was formally recognized as like the right-hand man of the Father. This is a place of royalty, of authority, of power, of glory. His glory was even greater than before. And if we look in the book of Revelation, it says this. Jesus is speaking to the churches. He's saying, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is a king. (laughs) Jesus is the king of kings, the final king. Now, our second point in this passage that points to Jesus' royalty is like Lord. Remember how Lord means kind of Yahweh, God? Well, the title Christ points to Jesus' royalty. It means Messiah or anointed one. About a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, the most famous king of Israel lived. His name was King David. And God made King David a promise. God promised that one of King David's descendants would sit on his throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, 16 says this, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This future king is known as the Messiah, the anointed one. You remember what, uh, when uh, Saul was, um, if you really know kind of your Bible story, when Saul was appointed king, he was anointed. God is promising an anointed one will come and he will sit on the throne forever. And we find this in Jesus. If you read the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and I think it's Luke chapter 3, you see them relating Jesus to King David. He's a descendant of King David. The question is, how do we respond to a king? How do we respond to a king that's a God and is also a savior? Philippians says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Now this is referring to the return of Christ when he comes back. Everyone's gonna bow, whether they want to willingly or unwillingly. It'll just be obvious, Jesus is God, he's king. But tonight, we each have an opportunity, you have an opportunity to bend the knee willingly to Jesus. We bend the knee willingly by worshiping him as God, by trusting him as our savior, 
and then by obeying him. I have a question. Do you obey him? This is what you do with a king. We submit to a king in obedience. This is really a call for those of us that know Christ, right? The first call to obey is just to put your faith in him, to confess your sins and to trust him. But for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that are disciples, we're called to obey. But it's hard, right? (laughs) It's hard to obey Jesus, to do those things I know I'm supposed to do. Jesus was perfect, right? He's God. He can do it for sure. I was thinking about this idea of why it's so hard to bend the knee. And I thought of an illustration that I think helps explain this idea. I, I do uh, uh, kind of this, this sport. It's highly athletic. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's pretty much the best sport there ever is, ever was. Um, but sometimes what happens? People get hurt, right? Uh, strained muscles. And I have a friend who, while he was doing this, uh, he, he, he tore his ACL. So his ACL is in his, his kneecap. And so he's been in a knee brace for several months now. And it makes, him, makes it really hard to bend the knee. He's been wounded. He's been injured. And so he can't bend the knee. And I think one of the reasons it's hard for us to bend our knees in obedience is because we've been wounded, <laughs> We go through life. When we were born, we were wounded by sin. <laughs> we were born into this sinful world. And that wounded us. And that, that like wounded our hearts. And it makes it difficult to, to obey. And as we go through life, we experience the negative consequences of sin day by day, week by week. Our relationships, like our loved one, our, our, our parents, our, our family members, our, our, our spouses, they wound us. And it makes, us, makes it hard to honor Jesus in those relationships, to obey him as we know we should. And so we need to deal with like this spiritual knee brace. <laughs> we need to figure out how to get it off. And we can't do it. We have to ask Christ to come and to do it. Take off my knee brace, Lord. Take off the reasons that I don't want to obey you. Holy Spirit, help me. <laughs> As part of his treatment for his knee, uh, I went and saw my friend, and he was like laying on the couch for like the first couple weeks. And when he would watch sports, there was like this machine that would like move his knee really slowly for like hours on end. And that was to keep his knee from locking up. Our Father in heaven, you are one of his children. <laughs> If you trust him, and he is not going to leave you in his sin. He is going to send this weird contraption that is called life <laughs> and circumstances and, and other Christians. He's going to send his Holy Spirit and his word, and he's just going to keep moving you. <laughs> he's going to keep bending your knee. And you have a choice. You can say, all right, I want to obey willingly, <laughs> or you can just fight the machine. Remember, God's all-powerful. Jesus is all-powerful. He will win the day. He will clean us of our sin. But do you want to work with him or do you want to work against him? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage myself. Like We need to obey Jesus in what he's calling us to do from his word through the Holy Spirit. The great news is, is that 
as we recognize Jesus as God, Savior, and King, he's going to make it all worthwhile. It says he's coming back. And he really is coming back. Jesus will return. He will roll, roll the sky apart like scrolls. Everyone will see him. And in that instant, we'll, be, we'll just, we'll know. It was all worthwhile. It'll become so clear, so obvious. We'll say, why did we ever doubt? Christ will return. Jesus is God. He's Savior and King. So worship, trust, and obey him. I want to I take a moment and return to that initial challenge that Jesus isn't just important for the Bible or for like our beliefs as a church. Jesus is important for you. Jesus is important for your life. And if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have not admitted he's God, if you have not trust him, trusted him as your savior and begun to obey him with your life, I pray that tonight will be the night that you make that decision. That, that God just moves in your heart and softens your heart and this becomes something that you want. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to close my eyes and lead us in a prayer of just confession and putting your faith in Christ. And if this is something you want to do, I encourage you to say this prayer with me uh, quietly and then come tell me after the service because there is this confession with your mouth of, of coming to faith in Christ that's part of the puzzle. But my big idea, kind of closing it before I say, is that Jesus is God's Savior and King, so worship, trust, and obey him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending your one and your only Son into this world to save us. I am so grateful for him. I am so grateful that Jesus is indeed God. And I want to worship Jesus with my life. From here on out, I want to follow him. I want to love him. Lord, tonight I make this decision. I make this commitment to follow him. I confess my sin. I'm a broken individual. I need Jesus to not only be a God I believe in, but a Savior I trust. Jesus, I'm putting all of my sin on you. I am falling on you, knowing that if I fall on you, one day I will also rise with you. I will rise again at the resurrection. Jesus, I believe you rose again already. And this is how you save us. And finally, Jesus, I want you to be not only my God and my Savior, but my King. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can obey you. So that I can obey you every day and become a little bit more like you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.